DW Inside Europe Hello and welcome. I'm Nick Martin in Germany. On today's program, Ukraine war fatigue helps a pro-Putin politician to victory in Slovakia. We think that Ukraine is a huge tragedy and if Smear forms the next government, then we'll do everything in our power to ensure peace talks start as soon as possible. As the US Congress holds military aid to Kyiv, can and will Europe step in? And we head to the Italian-French border town where anti-migrant sentiment runs high. The mayor is from the hardline anti-immigration Northern League. He says he wants illegal immigrants to be rounded up and deported to Tunisia, where most of the migrant boats landing in Italy now sail from. The term Ukraine war fatigue has been bandied about many times over recent months, but right now it appears that serious cracks in Western support for Kyiv are showing. In a few minutes, we'll look at the impact of the US Congress's decision to halt new military aid to Ukraine. But first to Slovakia, where the populist pro-Russian Smear Party won last week's election. Prior to the vote, its leader, Robert Fitzo, set alarm bells ringing by pledging to immediately halt Slovak military support for Ukraine. Fitzo was forced to step down in 2018 after the murder of investigative journalist Jan Kuciak. He now has two weeks to create what would be his fourth government. But will other parties dampen his anti-Ukraine stance? Rob Cameron has this report. Jubilation at Smear Party headquarters in the Slovak capital Bratislava in the early hours of Sunday morning as they realised they were on track for a fourth chance at government in 17 years. Yet again, Robert Fico has confounded his critics and wrong-footed his opponents. Who wouldn't be singing from a balcony at 4am after scoring a political comeback like this? Later that day, there were glimpses of what a new Fico government might look like. He was asked, obviously, about that threat that if Smear entered government, they would not send a single round of ammunition to Ukraine, remarks seized upon with glee in Moscow. In the cold light of a post-election press conference, however, there was perhaps just a hint that the thundering rhetoric might soon be retired. Slovakia and people in Slovakia have bigger problems than Ukraine. That's all I can say at the moment. We think that Ukraine is a huge tragedy for all sides. And if Smear forms the next government, whether we'll have the post of prime minister or not, then we'll do everything in our power, including at EU level, to ensure peace talks start as soon as possible. Indeed, peel away the layers and his position is quite nuanced. For a start, after sending ammunition, mine-clearing vehicles, attack helicopters and its entire fleet of decommissioned MiG-29 fighter jets, Slovakia has little left to give away, so it's easy to promise no more weapons. What's left are commercial contracts between Ukraine and Slovak arms manufacturers for such things as the Zuzana II self-propelled howitzer, Those orders bring in revenue for Slovakia and create jobs for Slovaks. Is Robert Fico really ready to jeopardise them? 
He's swatted away the question, suggesting he's not. He also made a point of stressing that Slovakia itself would not budge one millimeter away from its own EU and NATO membership, although he would certainly reserve the right to criticize it. Visiting Bratislava a week before the election, I joined a pleasure cruise on the River Danube, along with Alena Kutsko, an analyst for the Bratislava-based think tank Globsec. She told me Robert Fico has successfully tapped in to a desire among Slovaks, naive in her view, to maintain a position which is neither too close to Brussels and Washington, nor too close to Moscow. Slovakia has been drifting for quite some time. We do opinion polls regularly in the region, and traditionally half of the people would say that Slovakia belongs to the West, and another half would say that they belong to the East. But what unites them is that most Slovak would say, if they're given a choice, that Slovakia should be a bridge between the two worlds. It sounds like a nice idea, but it's not really feasible in reality. Indeed, Slovakia is the member of the European Union, Slovakia is the member of NATO, but most importantly, if you're in a situation where there is a major country that is waging war on your borders, there is very difficult to be a bridge, and also because Slovakia is such a small country. Critics in the Slovak media and liberal pro-Western parties are, for now, more worried about what Robert Fico will do at home rather than abroad. He's promised to immediately fire the chief of police and the special prosecutor, and it's worth mentioning that around 40 smear figures are being investigated for corruption. He says he'll get tough on his country's borders, using force against migrants. The pictures won't be pretty, in his words. The public broadcaster and NGOs will likely also be targeted. But we won't know any of this until he is actually appointed prime minister, and that won't happen until he manages to form a coalition. And that process has just begun. For DW, this is Rob Cameron in Prague. And as we mentioned earlier, the U.S. Congress last weekend halted billions of dollars in planned new military cash to Ukraine as part of a deal to avoid a total shutdown of the U.S. government. Some Republicans and millions of Americans have become increasingly bitter at Washington's ongoing support for Kyiv's fight back, especially as the much-awaited counteroffensive has disappointed. Some estimates say Ukraine's military will feel the pinch within a couple of months at the lack of U.S. cash, while others are sceptical over whether Ukraine's European allies can take up the slack. Zachary Pakin is a senior researcher at the Geneva Center for Security Policy. He told me that when the invasion began 20 months ago, many policymakers didn't expect Ukraine to receive so much help. You know, support from uh, Ukraine's Western backers has been substantial since the start of this war, in some ways far more substantial than, than many people expected, particularly when you take into account the degree of the economic punishment that the West has chosen to inflict on Russia. However, we're clearly at a crossroads right now for a number of reasons, and some of them are domestic within Western societies. Uh, other reasons have to do 
with the state of the battlefield in Ukraine itself. And some major decisions are, are going to have to be made, particularly what is going on in the United States right now with uh, the replacement of Speaker McCarthy, the possibility of a new U.S. House Speaker coming who would you know, make the, the tabling and passing of Ukraine assistance more difficult. And simply the the rise of uh, you know a certain faction um, within the Republican Party that is much more skeptical of uh, the status quo U.S. approach towards this war makes things a lot more complicated. And and that's even before you take into account anything that's going on within Europe. Um, but simply, if the United States goes on a different path, and if the issue of support to to Ukraine becomes even more politicized and even more endangered in the United States than it already is. That's going to you know, have a massive impact on Ukraine's ability to fight this war, and it's going to leave uh, European countries with major, major decisions to make, facing very difficult trade-offs, basically, in terms of uh, you know, whether they're prepared to put their money where their mouth is, uh, claiming that this is indeed an existential uh, crisis that they face with Russia's war of aggression. And so do you think, Zach, that EU countries will be able to make up for any US shortfall when it comes to military spending? Look, there's a question of money and then there's a question of capabilities. By and large, uh, you know, European support in relative terms uh, has been uh, devoted more so uh, on the financial assistance, humanitarian assistance, etc. side uh, in comparison with, uh, you know, the United States, which has been carrying uh, more of the load in terms of military assistance. So in terms of upping the dollar amounts, um, that, you know, that's something that will be obviously very politically difficult in Europe, but something that is uh, feasible. And it's something that's already being discussed, of course, in the context of Ukraine's accession to the European Union. I think there's wide ranging acknowledgement that that's going to result in Ukraine getting a lot of money from the EU budget. And so there's already an acknowledgement that, you know, European countries have to step up in terms of, of the amount of money that's going to be provided to Ukraine one way or another. Uh, this is a major commitment that, that European countries have, have taken by naming Ukraine a, a candidate country. It's almost as if the EU has declared that it is, you know, effectively responsible for Ukraine's future. But the question of, you know, military capabilities is another story. Um, if the United States decides that it's no longer interested in backing Ukraine to the hilt, uh, quote unquote, for as long as it takes, um, whether or not the European Union can step in and, and take the EU's place and, and take the United States place, excuse me, uh, is an entirely different story, right? The, the European Union may be getting more serious in some respects. Uh, about uh, security and defense. But that's very different from saying that the European Union is going to take over, you know, NATO's responsibility for ensuring the territorial defense of Europe. Um, the EU has no plans to do that, and therefore it will face difficult trade-offs if the US adopts a different approach. Now, we see this growing opposition among some voters, both in Europe and the US, to supporting Ukraine militarily, especially when the counteroffensive is not working. Is there a sense now that Ukraine's chances of winning the war are fading fast? It's not often appreciated how quickly we've seen a pivot from what seemed like an endless war in Afghanistan almost immediately into the situation vis-a-vis uh, -vis Russia and Ukraine. And obviously the two situations are, are very different in many respects. Uh, we're talking here about an, uh, in Europe about an interstate war, a war of aggression, uh, very different from the situation in Afghanistan. Uh, but nonetheless, I'm sure there are many voters in, in Western countries that were very fatigued with, with these so-called endless wars in, in Afghanistan and, and elsewhere uh, with, with U.S. involvement in the Middle East 
uh, and who are reluctant to see now their countries get involved in what appears to be possibly another endless war. And then we're seeing sort of elite actors begin to prepare uh, populations for the fact that this could be a very, very long war. Um, that the you know massive uh, you know impressive gains that were expected from this counteroffensive, similar to Ukraine's previous offensive uh, late last year, are not going to be repeated, and that there is no compromise in sight. That no side, neither the West nor Ukraine nor Russia, is prepared to compromise or to talk. And as a result, we're going to keep going on with this war of attrition for a very, very, very long time. And whether or not there's the political will at the grassroots level in the West to sustain that, I think, is really an, an open question. Meanwhile, the Kremlin must be watching with much amusement at this wavering support for Kyiv in the West. What does Putin do now? Does he just sit it out and wait for that support to totally disintegrate? He very much believes that time is on his side. That's why one could also argue that it's very important for Ukraine and for the West together to demonstrate their continued resolve, that if you actually want to bring the current phase of this crisis to a close sooner, uh, demonstrating that we're in it for the long run is very much important. So that's a perfectly legitimate argument. But at the same time, that cannot obviate the fact that, you know, we will at some point, if we want to be able to, you know, address this issue in a fashion that secures our, our own interests, you know, we'll have to engage, uh, you know, with, with the Russian side as well, because currently he has no incentive to come to the table. If, if Putin, as you say, believes that time is on his side and all he has to do is wait it out another year, another two, another three, then we're just going to get further down this rabbit hole of a war of attrition. So we're going to have to find a way again, uh, you know, that uh, in a way that respects Ukraine's interests, in a way that respects Ukraine's agency, nonetheless, to find a way to provide Russia with an incentive to come to the table. Because the logic has been, you know, that we've spelled out in sort of, you know, Western elite circles so far, is that, you know, even if Ukraine doesn't take back all of its territory, as it is legitimately entitled to do, nonetheless, the hope was that this counteroffensive would yield, you know, sufficient gains, large enough to cause Russia to realize that it cannot win this war and that it must come to the table. But I think, uh, you know, as we realize, this is actually an issue that Russia also defines as one of its vital interests. It's prepared to continue to fight. It will probably continue to fight even if it did lose all of the, the territory that it has, uh, you know, illegally uh, occupied and annexed since the start of this war uh, or earlier. So, you know, at, at some point we will provide an actual incentive to, to, to bring them to the table. And so I, I think there hasn't been enough planning on, on the diplomatic side of things thus far. Zachary Pakin there, a senior researcher at the Geneva Centre for Security Policy. Still to come on Inside Europe, the growing frustrations in one Italian border town at the number of migrant arrivals. And a reminder that DW keeps you updated on the latest news from across Europe. You can visit our website, dw.com, or check out DW Europe's social media pages. I'm Nick Martin in Germany. You're listening to Inside Europe. It's almost a year since Giorgia Maloney, leader of the conservative nationalist Brothers of Italy party, came to power in Italy, promising in particular to stop illegal immigrants arriving by sea from North Africa. But over the last year, the number of migrants landing in Italy has not fallen 
it has risen. In fact, it has doubled. Migrants are now landing in Italy at the rate of between six and 8,000 a week. This report from John Lawrenson in Ventimiglia on Italy's border with France, from where many migrants head north. Ventimiglia station. Several dozen African migrants are, well, not doing very much actually, on and around the pavement in front of and next to some cafes. A cafe owner chases away two who were getting a bit too comfortable sitting on his ice cream freezer. I'm selling up, is the first thing he says when I go to talk to him. The second is, do you want to come and see the mayor? There's a meeting about the migrants. Like many Italians on the border, Marco, as he's called, speaks good French. This is what he tells me as we walk to the town hall. Every evening they come when the cafe is closed. They break the tables and chairs outside and leave an unbelievable mess. I come every morning at four o'clock to clean up. I have to use a high-pressure hose. I've lost a lot of customers. Many people don't dare come here anymore. They don't dare park here. 30 or 40 migrants used to sleep rough by the station. Now it's 100 or 120. I've had enough and I'm selling after 23 years. Giorgia Maloney was elected almost a year ago promising a sea blockade to stop the migrants, etc., etc. Nothing. Zero. She's done nothing. She said there'd be more police, more controls. You've been to the station. Did you see any police there? We've arrived at the town hall where Marco does a sort of he's with me thing with security and I find myself in a meeting between the mayor and local people that's already underway. The mayor is from the hardline anti-immigration Northern League part of Italy's ruling coalition with Mrs Maloney's Brothers of Italy. He says he wants illegal immigrants to be rounded up and deported to Tunisia, where most of the migrant boats landing in Italy now sail from. But he has no power, he says. The national government has the power. When at the end of the meeting, Marco tells him, I'm a journalista, he gives me a look like a silent movie actor expressing surprise. And when I suggest an interview, walks off up a corridor. He doesn't actually break into a run, but almost which is a shame because I wanted to ask him about this. Giorgio Maloney promising that naval blockade to keep migrants away from Italian shores in a campaign speech a year ago, a blockade that has not materialised. As for repatriations of people who came here illegally, an agreement has been signed with Tunisia, but no concrete result so far. Brothers of Italy declined or did not respond to several requests to explain why this central part of their manifesto has not been enacted. But Christopher Hine, former official of the UN High Commission for Refugees, who teaches migration law and policy at the Lewis University in Rome, offered this explanation. A naval blockade would bring Italy into conflict with the European Commission and European law, which is something it cannot afford. Italy is the main beneficiary of the European um, Recovery Programme instituted in the aftermath of the COVID-19 crisis. We speak about uh, 200 billion euro. 
this is an enormous amount of money. And this depends on the relationship Italy is maintaining with the European Commission. And therefore, the margin to go totally away from European policy directions regarding migration and asylum is very small. In the late afternoon, I wandered down, as the migrants do, to a long car park underneath the flyover where a charity gives out free meals. The Doctors Without Borders NGO tells me Maloney is hindering sea rescue operations as she has forbidden NGO ships from picking up the passengers of more than one migrant vessel before sailing back to Italy. But this is mild compared to what she promised. Some migrants from Sudan tell me why they left their country, their bad experiences getting here and their hopes for the future. Does the name Georgia Maloney mean anything to you, I ask. Uh, no. Who is she? Oh, a leader, I say. Is she the Queen of Italy, asks one. And perhaps she is a bit like a constitutional monarch whose margin for action, as Professor Hine put it, is actually very small. John Norris and DW, Vantamiglia, Italy. And still to come, the role that Turkish drones played in helping Azerbaijan take back Nagorno-Karabakh. And women in Greenland demand compensation from Denmark after being fitted with contraceptive devices without their knowledge. But first, here's another podcast from DW that you just have to check out. I'm Andreas Becker. I'm Nicholas Martin. This is the story of the biggest cannabis scam ever. This is the story of Juicy Fields. I've lost 20K. I had 350,000 euros in the account. And the scam might just continue. We have owners that sometimes like to be flashy. Hence why they like cannabis and crypto. Money, money, green, you know, like everybody likes money. In this investigative podcast series, we entered a world that we never expected to find. It bears all the trademarks for Russian mafia. It's a fantasy. People want that the Russian is the very best. Stop fantasy. This is Cannabis Cowboys, a story about big dreams, juicy money, and never-ending hype. Find Cannabis Cowboys wherever you get your podcasts. Now, this week, Germany has marked 33 years since reunification, which leads me to our question of the week. It was the fall of the Berlin Wall on November the 9th, 1989, which led to German reunification. We want you to tell us the name of the famous crossing point between East and West Berlin when the city was still divided. Was it... Checkpoint Alpha. As a free man, I take pride in the words, Ich bin ein Berliner. Was it Checkpoint Beta? Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Or Checkpoint Charlie. Alles ist möglich. Berlin ist frei. 
The poll is up on Spotify, so head on over there now to take part. Last week, we asked you about the purpose of the first ever webcam, which was invented at the UK's Cambridge University. There were actually two correct answers, to watch a coffee pot and to identify a coffee thief. I actually had to Google that and double-check that myself, that there were two answers. Thanks very much if you took part. For more interesting stories from all over Europe, remember to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. This is Inside Europe, and I'm Nick Martin in Germany. This is Inside Europe, and I'm Nick Martin in Germany. In the next half hour, as Nagorno-Karabakh prepares for dissolution, what role did Turkish drones play in Baku's victory? The sound is psychological torture, she says. You just wait, wondering if you'll get killed or not. A historic birth control scandal in Greenland has women demanding compensation from Denmark. And as a major Dutch gas field closes after more than 60 years, many residents say good riddance. Initially, it was lots of cracks in the plaster, subsiding floors inside. And now the outside walls are also subsiding. My flat roof has gone crooked. Doors no longer open. I have to sand down the doorstep to be able to open the front door. Broadcasting from Germany. This is Inside Europe. At the end of last month, Azerbaijan announced a military operation to take control of the contested region of Nagorno-Karabakh in the South Caucasus. Nagorno-Karabakh is internationally recognised as part of Azerbaijan, but the region is home to ethnic Armenians who for the last three decades have run their own separatist government. In the past, the two sides have fought full-scale wars over the region, but this time the Armenian authorities inside Nagorno-Karabakh quickly surrendered to Azerbaijan. And more than 100,000 people have already fled the region into Armenia. Part of the reason Azerbaijan achieved such a quick military success is because the country received significant support from nearby Turkey. From the Armenian capital, Yerevan, Levi Bridges has more. Back in 2020, Armenia and Azerbaijan fought a 44-day war over Nagorno-Karabakh. During the conflict, Azerbaijan retook large sections of the region, emerging as the clear victor, and thousands of Armenians were displaced. 
Azerbaijan's actions in Nagorno-Karabakh have been greatly aided by Turkey, which provides Azerbaijan with military support. In particular, a drone manufactured by Turkey called the Bayraktar TB2. The Bayraktar is small enough that it could fit in your kitchen, but it can carry bombs and it's relatively cheap to build. The drone makes a buzzing sound when it flies, as captured in this YouTube video. In Yerevan, I meet a woman named Margarita Karamyan, who fled Nagorno-Karabakh during the 2020 war and has direct experience with these drones. Punched over a laptop, Karamyan shows me pictures of the basement in Nagorno-Karabakh where she hid during the 2020 war. She brings up another photo of a huge, gaping hole in a building she says was hit by a Bayraktar drone. Karamyan tells me that she'd hear the buzzing sound the drones make for hours as they circled above her hometown. The sound is psychological torture, she says. You just wait, wondering if you'll get killed or not. Ukraine's military has also used Bayraktars to repel the Russians, and with great success. In fact, the drone company is even building a production factory in Ukraine. The Bayraktar is so revered now in Ukraine, there's even a song about it. In the music video, Ukrainian soldiers dance beside destroyed Russian tanks spray-painted with expletives as they sing the Bayraktar's praises. So in Ukraine, these Turkish-made drones are seen as a force for good. But for Armenians, they're a threat. Azerbaijan used the Bayraktar to knock out Armenia's defenses during the 2020 war, which helped Azerbaijan take over large parts of Nagorno-Karabakh. After the war, trucks carrying Bayraktars rolled through Azerbaijan's capital, Baku, in a victorious military parade. Many Armenians believe the violence caused by these drones amounts to war crimes. Arman Tatayan is Armenia's former human rights defender, which is a government position. These drones were used not only against military, but also to bomb to destroy civilian communities. In recent years, Turkish drones have been used in conflicts around the world, making Turkey become an important weapons supplier. And the drone is part of Turkish foreign policy. Turkey is a close ally with Azerbaijan and directly aided Baku during the 2020 war, according to Tetayan. Members of armed forces of Turkey were directly engaged in managing this application of these drones against Armenia. Proving whether these drones are responsible for war crimes, like killing civilians, is tricky. Anahit Haratsunyan is with the Center for Truth and Justice, a law clinic in Armenia. She says it's rare to find debris in war zones with serial numbers intact that clearly identify where weapons, like drones, came from. This is really a huge tragedy that you can't gather facts that can show how our people killed during the war, because after the explosion, everything is like nothing left. Not everyone is convinced that Bayraktar is such an important part of warfare. At a cafe in Yerevan, I meet Shant Abramian, an Armenian who grew up in the U.S. and fought in the 2020 war himself. 
you know, we had drones flying overhead, but like we were like scattered enough where like, you know, drones wouldn't hit us. People like to say like, oh, Bayraktar is like this big bad wolf, but like they're not just like some magical thing that's going to win you the war. Abramian says the Armenian government didn't come down hard enough on Azerbaijan with the weapons they did have. Turkish drones are perhaps just as successful off the battlefield. Drones provide you high-quality videos, and they are helpful in information warfare. Leonid Nursisyan is a fellow at the think tank APRI Armenia. He says the effectiveness of these weapons is sometimes overblown. But at the same time, he says these Turkish drones are still a major threat because Armenia never replenished its air defense systems after the last war. Armenia also gets most of its arms from Russia, which is overextended in Ukraine. Russia now practically stopped all its arms export, not only to Armenia, but everywhere else. Many Armenians are fearful that Azerbaijan won't stop in Nagorno-Karabakh. They worry the country will also launch a separate military campaign to take over parts of Armenia. In an old movie theater in Yerevan, a school called Vama teaches civilians combat skills. A man dressed in army fatigues directs a group of men and women aiming fake Kalashnikovs at a Soviet-era mosaic on the wall. The group's vice president, Vagnyak Vartanov, says they're teaching Armenians how to stay alive. We can't count on the West for help, he says, so we have to defend ourselves. As the students train, Vartanov told me the only way to bring peace is to prepare for war. Levi Bridges, DW, Yerevan, Armenia. Now, here's a country that we don't often feature here on Inside Europe, Greenland. Although technically situated in North America, the country is actually part of Denmark, although it has wide-ranging autonomy. This week, a group of 67 women filed a claim for compensation from Copenhagen for being fitted with interuterine devices or coils without their consent decades ago. Many of the women were only teenagers when the programme was introduced to limit birth rates in the Arctic Territory. The women were largely unaware that they'd been fitted with a contraceptive device. For more, I asked Copenhagen-based journalist Adrienne Murray why the Danish government had been so keen to control population growth in Greenland. There was a small population explosion. The population of Greenland had doubled from yeah, the mid-1950s to 1970s, so just in a decade and a half. So it's believed that there are a couple of different reasons for, for introducing a birth control program at that time. There was a high proportion of young single mothers and high rates of abortion. And so there was a, a drive in general in the 60s and 70s, not just in Greenland, but elsewhere in the world, to, to introduce more family planning. But historians have also pointed to a, a sort of an alleged financial rationale. All this healthcare and the wealth care services were getting very expensive for Denmark. So eventually what transpires is a campaign is rolled out to implement birth control and the coil is chosen over other contraceptives such as the pill. And overall, about 4,500 IUDs, that's, that's the coil, they were installed in women and girls between 1966 and 70. So that was about half the female fertile population. And there was very clearly an immediate impact. Records do show 
that the birth rate halved in just a few years. And I spoke to one historian. He told me he'd read doctor's journals that were detailing the, the success of the program. And we also know there was a speech in 1970 by the Danish minister for Greenland, and he he talked about the falling birth rate and, and mentioned that this was not least partly to do with the COIL program. Now, some of the women say they were unaware they'd been fitted with a contraceptive device. What were they told? There are quite a lot of different scenarios among the different women that were affected. Now, it's important to mention that of this figure, this 4,500, it's not clear who or how many of those women had the coil implanted unwillingly or without knowing. However, many women have come forward now to complain and speak publicly about what they went through. And we do know there are women who were fitted with a coil after an abortion or after giving birth without being informed. And, you know, some of them were struggling to to conceive and only found out when they went on a visit to their gynecologist who then told them they, they had a coil. We also know that in some places in Greenland and also actually at boarding schools here in Denmark, in classes, all the girls in the class were taken to see the doctor. So some of those who had a calling fitted were still at school when they were taken for the procedure. We also know that the law was changed in 1970 so that 15-year-old girls could have the contraception without the doctors asking their parents first. And some of the women who come forward were as young as 13. Of those women, you know, some are adamant that they did not have the procedure explained to them by the doctors properly and that they weren't really in a position to consent because they were so young and there are power dynamics at play when you have a, a person in authority telling you to have this done. And also that they're adamant that their parents weren't told either. And this must have had such a huge impact on the affected women and their families. Have these women given public accounts of exactly what they went through? Yes. I mean, it's really within the last year or two that more and more women have been coming forward to share their stories publicly. I visited Nuke last summer and actually I I interviewed some of the women who were affected when I was there. Among those who received coils were some who were teenage girls when they had it installed. And, you know, some of them were, were virgins and for a little bit of context, I mean, these these IUDs or, or coils that we're talking about back in the 60s or 70s, they were really meant for adult women who had given birth. And they were a different design. They were much larger. And I'm told that the procedure for them was intensely painful. Some women have spoken of lasting trauma and also suffering from health complications that have gone on for years. And there are also women who've been unable to have children and suspect that the coil may have been to blame. Anecdotally, there was one woman in Nuke who told me that everyone had an aunt who's childless. So people are starting to wonder, you know, if this is maybe the reason why. Besides those personal stories, I mean, if we take a step back and we look more widely at Greenland itself, the impact is there to see in the statistics. The birth rate of the late 1960s and 70s, it slowed markedly. And there was even one year in the early 70s, when the population actually shrank. I understand the government has launched an investigation into this scandal, but why did it take so long for it to come to light? After all, this happened in the 1960s. The main reason is the very personal nature of this. It was Nea Leibert, who uh, she's one of the the women who was one of the first really to speak up, and she's now in her 60s. Uh, She posted about it on Facebook 
couple of years back, and then her story got picked up by a Greenlandic women's magazine. She then created a Facebook group and you know, for, for women to come forward and share their stories. It was followed by an investigative podcast in May last year. And that really sort of delved into the statistics and, and really uncovered how widespread this was. And that really thrust this into the spotlight. It was shortly after that that the investigation was announced. It was announced in autumn last year, but that appears to be taking some time and, and facing some delays. And so that's only going to report back in uh, 2025. But I mean, the big question, of course, is why did no one speak up until now? And, you know, essentially, we're talking about procedures that take place in a, you know, it's a very private part of a woman or a girl's body. And that in itself is, is a very taboo subject. It was a very intrusive procedure. And so for some women, it was deeply traumatizing. I've been told by Naya and other women that, you know, it was difficult to, to speak up at that time. And some of them never even talked to their friends about it or let alone their own parents. And I was talking there to journalist Adrienne Murray in Copenhagen there. Now to the Netherlands, which is more famous for being flat than a seismic hotspot. When a huge gas field was discovered in the north of the country in 1959, it was a game changer. The field's riches laid the foundation for the Dutch welfare state. But after 20 years, earthquakes started taking place around the field. Residents struggled for years to be heard, and getting compensation turned out to be a bureaucratic nightmare. Now, after years of local opposition, the gas field has been closed down. Fernand Van Tetz has this report. When Irene Vendetti moved to an old labourer's cottage near Groningen in 1994, she knew about the large gas field, but wasn't prepared for the earthquakes. It's a strange feeling when you're out walking the dog and there's a quake. During a big one, the garbage bins would move. They would shake from side to side. The earthquakes are caused by the extraction of gas from the Groningen gas field. The damage to her house has been extensive. Initially, it was lots of cracks in the plaster, subsiding floors inside. And now the outside walls are also subsiding. My flat roof has gone crooked. Doors no longer open. I have to sand down the doorstep to be able to open the front door. The gas field was discovered in 1959, and its riches laid the foundation for the Dutch welfare state. The Kroningen gas field is unique in several aspects. First, the size, the magnitude, is a huge resource, the largest one in Europe, onshore. Second, the cost of drilling, of producing, are really low, about two cents a cubic meter, while the average long-term gas price is 20 cents, so a huge uh, source of welfare, and thirdly, the, the capability to increase its production really quickly. Machio Mulder is a professor of energy economics at the University of Groningen. He says that it was only after a big earthquake hit in Housinger in 2012 that he caught on to the possible downside. To be honest, I already have been working in the field of gas market analysis since 25 years or so. And before Heisenberg, I also was not really aware of the earthquakes. I also had the idea this is not really serious. I also was really yeah, focused. I was aware of all the positive economic benefits of the Groningen gas field. But the social consequences were huge. The people were not taken really seriously in their complaints, and that's 
was a major problem. It took many years before and the government decided we have to do something, we have to change the production, we have to compensate the people who have complaints, who have damages to their houses. Residents have long struggled to get compensated. Adi Dost will have to leave his house so it can be reinforced. His belongings have been packed since last April, but the move-out date keeps changing. For us, this started 10 years ago. That's how long this has been going on. Our house will be completely reinforced. The inside will be stripped. Everything has to be taken out. We are going to a temporary home and we'll have to be there for six to nine months until our place is completely strengthened and repaired. The procedures all take so long, they are so complicated and cost so much money. He feels the earthquakes have taken over his life. It costs enormous energy. It takes up so much of our energy. And the strange thing is, we all live together in this village. But if you go to the billiards club, people talk about the strengthening and the earthquakes. If you visit someone, you talk about the strengthening and the earthquakes. If you talk to your neighbor, it's about the strengthening and the earthquakes. It's in your head the entire day, and it doesn't go away. A parliamentary inquiry earlier this year found the government was too focused on the gas fields' revenues rather than the cost to residents. Since 2015, the government has started to reduce production from the field. On the 1st of October, it was closed. <laughs> Prime Minister Mark Rutte visited affected residents last Friday. I had talks with um, uh, the people here who are very close to the reconstruction effort and strengthening the houses where it is necessary. And since we had this uh, parliamentary inquiry in April, we are trying to increase the whole speed of, of the recovery. It's important because we know there is a direct link between uh, the earthquakes and gas extraction. And um, luckily we are able to do without the Groningen gas field. Um, so that's why it is crucial uh, to close this because of the safety of people. Professor Mulder says it's a shame that the gas field will be closed, leaving billions of cubic gas in the ground. And the problem itself is not with earthquakes, because they were not that huge that we had really uh, injured people or deaths, but more how the government and the company Denon, uh, responsible for the production, dealt with all these complaints and uncertainties. Not all installations have been fully dismantled. If the winter is especially cold, the gas field could be tapped one last time. Fernand van Tetz, DW, Groningen. And still to come, we meet up with the Indian diaspora in Germany as they come together in Berlin for the Ganesh Festival. And a reminder, you're welcome to message us with your thoughts on any of these reports. Just drop a line to InsideEurope at dw.com and we'll be back in touch. This is Inside Europe, and I'm Nick Martin in Germany. Finally this week, when it comes to new arrivals to Germany's capital, Berlin, the Indian community has recently seen record numbers. And this has also ensured that Indian festivities are getting grander. 
The recent 10-day Ganesh festival celebrating the elephant-headed Hindu deity saw over 7,000 Indians from all over Germany take part. Our reporter Nimesh Sarant was in Berlin to explore how this transformation has come about. I'm at the community hall attached to the Sri Ganesh Hindu temple in Berlin's Neukölln district. This chant translates to Lord Ganesh, come ahead and bless us, and is often heard during the Hindu festival of Ganesh Chaturthi or Ganesh Utsav. It starts with the installation of the Ganesh idol in people's homes or in public venues, and is followed by daily rituals involving prayers and offerings for the next 10 days. So last year we had the first ever, uh, we call it Sarvajanik Ganesh Utsav, which is like public uh, celebration. As far as known to us uh, within Europe, it's, it's a task to get uh, everything organized for 10 days. Manohar Prabhu came to Berlin in 1999 as a student. He's one of the founding members of Marathi Mitra Berlin. It began as an independent initiative for screening Marathi language films and concerts back in 2016, but is now a registered organization. Its members have organized the 10-day Ganesh festival along with the Sri Ganesh Hindu temple in Berlin, a music ensemble called Ramanbagh Yuamanch, and the Sri Kasba Ped Ganpati, a centuries-old temple in Pune, India. In front of the idol are offerings, flowers, fruits, food items, and the traditional sweet loved by Lord Ganesh, called Modak. It's a kind of dumpling with mashed jaggery and coconut filling. Every day at 11 a.m. and 7 p.m., worshippers gather around the idol to chant prayers known as Aarti. The crowd is intergenerational. Elders, as well as many kids, are dressed in traditional clothes. Many devotees have recently moved to Berlin and this celebration reminds them of home. So I come from Pune, so this is like very endearing to me when I see something like this here in Berlin. Like, of course, I miss home, but uh, it's still nice to see something like this happening here. I am from Delhi and I came like six months back in March. For me, it's the first time ever I'm celebrating this festival because in North it's not a thing. Every evening, there's a culture program. Tonight, there's a Kathak performance. It's one of the eight major forms of Indian classical dance. The hall is packed to the gills with Indians, but among the crowd are many non-Indians as well. Bahar Haganipur is the vice president of the Berlin parliament from the Greens party. She's visiting the Ganesh festival again this year. Berlin is a melting pot with different cultures, different religions. Well, this is an important sign for Berlin to show that we are a multicultural city. Neukölln is a colorful district and this festival is a colorful festival, so it's on the right place here in Neukölln. 
In India, the Ganesh festival is also an opportunity for a lot of political parties to get involved in the festivities. It isn't uncommon for religion to be politicized. So far, that hasn't been the case here. Manohar Prabhu again. Yeah, I would say uh, religion and politics shouldn't be mixed. Yeah? And what we are depicting here is really the cultural aspect of it. We really uh, don't want to politicize um, any of it. And as you know, Hinduism, it's, for me, it's not a religion. It's a way of life. It's the last day of the festivities and everyone is getting ready for the procession. Anand Deshpande has come all the way from southern Germany to lead the group of 70-plus drummers of the Rabanbagh Yuva Manch. They are dressed in bright red kurtas, starchy white turbans with a golden design and sport a crescent moon-shaped vermilion stamp on their foreheads. Our objective is to present traditional folk music and dances from Maharashtra in an authentic way here in Berlin. We've seen that people in Europe are very curious about Indian traditions and art forms. But it's also important to inform them the right way. Among the crowd enjoying the Dholtasha music are many foreigners. I was curious to know how much they knew about the celebrations. Sefi Ganesha celebration, right? Seems to be beautiful. I don't know much about it, but um, seems to be a nice celebration. We came by chance. Uh, it's very colorful and the clothing of the people are wonderful. And it's very, very loud. And uh, I could watch some musicians on the streets. The Doltasha is reaching its peak, and the crowd of people, easily over a few thousand, just cannot stop cheering and dancing. It's an apt farewell to Lord Ganesh. With this chant, devotees say goodbye to Lord Ganesh with the hope that he visits them again next year. Nimish Savant, DW, Berlin. As well as our rebroadcasters around the world, Inside Europe continues to gain traction on podcast platforms. You can just hit the subscribe button and give us a review and it will help promote the show to other listeners. This programme was produced by Helen Sini and sound engineer Leon Novak. And I'm Nick Martin. Thanks for listening. Inside Europe comes to you from DW in Germany. DW.